Hey y'all, welcome to the first episode of Just Food, a podcast discussing diet through the lens of sustainability, health, and community impact. I am so excited to be launching this podcast with you all and welcoming today's guest, Dr. Galen Martin. He will be joining us to discuss the complicated world of food and its environmental impact. I'm Victoria Ginsburg, your host. This story begins when I was walking into my local supermarket in Eugene, Oregon, in the middle of winter, and it was raining, of course. And sitting in the produce aisle is a stack of gleaming avocados. Now, there's nothing particularly strange about this, unless, of course, you start to think about what it means to have a bounty of fresh avocados in the dead of winter in Oregon. Avocados require humidity and heat to grow, neither of which are present in most of the continental U.S. during the winter. So where were these avocados from, and what was the environmental impact of them being available to me year-round in Oregon? Well, here's what I found. Before 1997, U.S. citizens could only eat California avocados in the summer. Today, avocados are available year-round thanks to a 1994 NAFTA agreement. With 80% of avocados in the U.S. coming from Michoacan, Mexico, and the average American eating 7 pounds of avocado per year. This is around 18 avocados, so I'm going to guess I probably eat more than the average. And this short investigation on avocados brought me to my main questions for this episode. Is eating local food better for the environment than eating food that is part of our globalized food chain? And is there even such a thing as good food or bad food for the environment? Well, this is where our awesome guest, Dr. Galen Martin, comes in to answer these questions. Dr. Martin is a professor of environmental studies at the University of Oregon. And when we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, he showed up a few minutes late because he had to finish up bottle feeding his baby goats. So between these two things, being an environmental studies professor and a local farmer here in Eugene, I knew his expertise would be necessary if we wanted to get any answers. So into my burning questions, is there such a thing as good food and bad food for the environment? I think we all have a tendency, uh, particularly in complex matters and in a, in a world where we're inundated with information, is this, we want, let's get to the bottom line. Tell me what's good for me and what's bad for me. Agriculture, by its very nature, is a compromise. It, it can't grow food without altering what we might consider the natural environment, unless we're just hunting and gathering. But even that is, you know, disrupting. If you have enough people, you're disrupting those processes as well. It's not feasible for 8 billion people to hunt and gather. So there's going to be an environmental impact. I think it's more fruitful to think about what's better than what we're doing. How can we, are our decisions moving us in the right direction as opposed to is this going to solve the problem? Is this going to save the world or save the planet? It's too big a task. It becomes overwhelming. It, It breeds cynicism when we ask that question. So I think it's more useful to think how can we do things better and stop looking for the uh, that one answer to this complex question with every solution there comes a new set of problems um, that we need to consider as well and i think one of another thing that breeds 
cynicism within the faddishness of people's awareness of food is that we're told that something is good. And then, of course, as soon as you investigate it, you'll see that there's some ambiguity there and, and maybe some negative impacts. And then people feel betrayed, maybe. Like, well, you, we were told this was a, the, the answer, and, and now we found out it isn't. That reminds me of the term greenwashing, yeah. where a certain company labels something as super good for the environment and healthy, and, and then you actually look at the ingredients or how it's being made, and you realize it's not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, it's very, very prominent. There's no, no legal standards for things like natural or green or better for the environment. The words are easy to manipulate in that regard. And... So it's important to have a little deeper understanding and have a, a skeptical, I guess, approach to claims of, of green. I mean, the term itself is undefined, really. I believe knowing there is no perfect list of environmentally friendly foods we should follow could help take the stress off of us but it also does continue to make things complicated. Speaking about this complicated world of food, let's dive into the way in which our food system is working today. And maybe, like Dr. Martin said, we can start thinking of ways that we can make this system better. Here's the term I mentioned, globalized food. The globalization of food has taken specific food items, cuisines, and food cultures out of their place of origin and spread them all over the world. Today in the U.S., half of all our fruit and a third of all vegetables are imported. Imported produce means more availability of inexpensive fruits and vegetables year-round for consumers. However, it also means a larger carbon footprint and a higher rate of pesticide residue from these imported fruits and vegetables. Well, Dr. Martin, once again, take it away. What's the starting point here for the globalized food system? There are 8 billion people on the Earth's surface, and we all have to eat. And many people aren't living anywhere near, or many countries are just net food importers, uh, particularly with, with key commodity crops, because they can't grow them themselves. And so... I can make the observation that maybe from that perspective there are too many people in the world, but I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> so I don't, it's kind of a non-starter. The start, starting point is there are 8 billion people. How do, we, how do we continue to feed them? And the globalized food system helps smooth out what was most of, for human history, a series of famines and food shortages because of dependency on local production, which can so easily be uh, interrupted and disrupted by all kinds of things, famine, war, drought, um, political upheaval. So the global food system was designed to address some of those vulnerabilities. In the process, of, of course, it localized decision-making into fewer and fewer hands and is considered economically efficient as it gets larger, but that pushes against ecological efficiency, and part of that is made it uh, both physically and 
emotionally distant from us as we as food consumers about where our food comes from. Globalization has to do with um, overcoming seasonality. If you if you think it's something that needs to be overcome. Um, but yeah, we've come to expect the same food all year round, and especially then if we think that if we want fresh food and the same food, then we have to obviously bring things in from the Southern Hemisphere. So if you want table grapes in the winter, they're probably going to come from Chile. Want to start asking the basic question, where does my food come from? It's kind of a subversive question. In a capitalist system, that to ask that question uh, kind of goes against the grain. Uh, we are inundated with messages of convenience and uh, cheap prices and access to the things we want when we want them at a reasonable price right now. And there's nothing wrong, intrinsically wrong with that, particularly with food. I hope people can have access to good food and, and affordable. But when you start asking where things come from, you are then become engaged in a more systemic analysis and more thoughtful about not only food, but all of the people involved in that process. And like I said, the, in the environment as well. If you buy a hamburger at a drive-thru, right, um, you don't have to have any sense of where that came from. And for a lot of people, that's fine. That's what that's they don't want to do that. But if you do, I think there's much more to be gained from thinking more locally than just having better, purer food that might be better for the environment. There's a whole layer of social um, and economic benefits that uh, are that accrue with that kind of uh, awareness of where your food comes from. You know the benefits of local, locally sourced, and that has to do with developing relationships, not only with the environment and being able to have a better understanding of where things come from because you can actually go out and witness it, um, but it's about building relationships. And it's a different thing when you buy food from a food cart, you know, once a week, and you get to know the people there, or you um, buy a CSA, a share of food, and you might be required to go out and visit the farm and and then when and then you might have a deeper appreciation for that food and and eat it with a greater sense of reverence and maybe more likely to want to share it with people and build community both around the process of production uh, the process of buying and then the process of prepping and eating that those become communal uh, they have a, a a communal aspect to them that the the more you know fast food convenience values don't they've completely uh, abandoned those notions sourcing everything locally isn't necessarily just the answer so you can take your pressure off, off of that uh, it can be inconvenient uh, and downright impossible for a lot of people. Um, we were talking earlier, the, the geography and demographics of population uh, remind us of the huge limits of only going local. 
for most people in the world, it's just virtually impossible. My example is always Las Vegas, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's not enough water. There's not any viable land in that area. Um, and if you wanted to make it viable to grow a lot of food, it would take a tremendous amount of imp imports um, of energy and nutrients, fertilizers, maybe even soil itself. So we happen to be situated here in Willamette Valley. Uh, as far as I can tell, we source about 3% of our food, typically. And we, this is one of the best, you know, one of the better agricultural areas in the world. And we can grow food almost all year round, and with greenhouses you could. So I've seen one study that said we could maybe reasonably get up to 25%, but that's in one of the best places in the world. Most places don't have that option. So the answer isn't, I think, to shift over, you know, to abandon the global system. If we abandon the global food system, a lot of people would starve. Um, so, but there's a better balance, and this is what I mean, like, instead of thinking, should I eat locally or should I eat globally? The answer is somewhere in between, and it also it's completely circumstantial on where you live and how many people live around you and how much how many resources are available for growing food in that area. There are so many benefits socially, economically, nutritionally, uh, environmentally to move back towards more locally sourced foods. But that's different than saying we should, we should only eat locally. Sure. And, and, and many people who can do that, I think you have to be in a pretty privileged situation to be able to do that. Here is my roommate, Maya, an environmental studies student at the University of Oregon and a food enthusiast. Last term, Maya was a part of this class called Urban Farm, right? Yeah. And they had a project where for a week... Two days. Two oh, really? Yeah. Okay. They had a project for two days. They had to eat local, only local foods, and they could define what local meant. Was it all of Oregon, or is it just Eugene, where we're located currently? And they got to kind of define local. And I was curious, as a college student, I don't feel like a lot of people focus what they're buying um, around whether it's local or not. It's probably more about cost. And so I'm wondering what that experience was like. It was really cool, but it was also very difficult. Um, the, the thing about it was that it wasn't just like, oh, local uh, zucchini. But, you know, if you're getting a loaf of bread, for instance, you have to think, okay, well, where was the wheat grown to make the flour? And where, was the, where did the milk come from? Like, where did every little aspect come from? And... So that was definitely the hard part. The price was obviously another difficult aspect because localized food just generally takes more money to produce and, and rightfully is more expensive. But as a college student, it's hard to make those decisions when, you know, you can buy, you know, like, eggs, for instance. The conventional eggs go for, like, a dollar versus if you get, like, farm-raised, um, like, super local eggs, it's going to be, like, 8 or $9. Dollars. 
well, I made three, I made six meals, but, um, every meal I just felt really proud because I knew, first of all, that, like, it just took a, a lot of effort to, like, get the products and then make all the food and do the whole thing and look for them and figure out where I was shopping. And then also just finally, like, sitting down and eating my meal and knowing about every aspect that kind of went into the process. Um, yeah, so I didn't buy a lot of things. Um, so I bought a, a cabbage, one big red cabbage. Um, and I bought a bagel. <laughs> well, actually, I bought two bagels. Where the, were they from? <laughs> they were from Market of Choice. But I had a whole scenario with the bagels because on the package of the first bag of bagels... It said, like, from our bakery at Market of Choice. So I Which is in Eugene, so it's local. Yeah. So, but I wasn't sure what that meant. Like, did they get the wheat from Oregon? Like, I don't know. So I, when I was at the store, I talked to the cashier, and I was like, hey, do you know if, if these, where the, wheat comes from for the bagels (laughs) and the lady was like I don't know what you're talking about she was like I can call I can call the bakery so she called the bakery and I talked to the bakery the bakery was like we don't make these bagels are you serious (laughs) and I was like well it says on here that you guys make the bagels she was like I don't know why it says that we don't make the bagels I was like, wow. okay, so investigation. I ditched the ba- those bagels <laughs> and I searched more and I found some bagels that told me where all the ingredients came from and they were all farms in like Cottage Grove and like other farms in the Willamette Valley. So my favorite meal I made with the cabbage was a big salad and I I made a dressing with I remember the salad. You remember the salad. It was very big. It was huge. It was probably the biggest salad I've ever eaten. <laughs> um and it was I made a dressing with um cilantro and basil that I got from the urban farm. And I cheated. I used a little salt and pepper, but that's okay. You said you know, it's all about balance. It is all about balance and you know, sometimes you have to. So I made bagel croutons. Yum. And I tossed it all together, and it was one of my favorite meals I've ever made. I love that. There's so much that goes into our food system. Like, you have labor and knowledge and science and soil and energy and, like, all these different aspects. And there's so many people that are working so hard for your food just to get to your plate so it's important to do your part because everyone else is doing their part you know everyone loves food it's dopamine (laughs) it's happy food like food just makes you feel good we're food people if you cannot tell (laughs) we love food and i love food (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much maya for sitting down with me on the floor of my bedroom and talking at midnight on a Sunday before school. It's not different from what we do every night. (laughs) Exactly. We like to stay up and study. And talk about food. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. Of course, anytime. In Maya's class assignment, 
everyone was tasked with defining what local means to them. Is it only eating food grown and made in a town where they are in? Or could they go as far as the whole state? A popular way of understanding and tracking how far your food has traveled to get to you is a term called food miles. Looking in my fridge today, I have a Fuji apple from the foothills of the Cascade Mountain Range in central Washington, meaning the food miles of my apple would roughly be 173 miles, meaning it took less energy and effort to get to me than my flour tortillas from Monrovia, California, which is roughly 908 miles away. Just between these two food items, if I wanted to cut down on my food miles, which would hopefully cut down on my carbon footprint too, next time I go grocery shopping, I would try to get tortillas from somewhere closer. However, Dr. Martin explained to me that it's not always this clear cut. Here's Dr. Martin breaking down food miles. So this is a fairly uh, broadly understood term now, and it's a good first step in starting to think about literally where your food comes from and how many miles it's traveled, but it is should not be the last it's a it's a good first step, and and I think it's a good term in the sense that it got people engaged in asking this question about where does my food come from, and why is it important, and it's also often uh, discussed in context of carbon footprint, which of course related to to climate change. the The weakness of it is that it's a very small part of the entire environmental. Even carbon footprint is only one part of the impact of growing, distributing, eating food. And so it's a narrow part of a narrow part of a broader question of what is the environmental impact of the food that we eat. It's, it's a, I think the reason it gained popularity is it's, it's an easy measurement. Well, seems like it's easy. Where is the food grown? How far away is it? It turns out most food that comes to us uh, doesn't follow a linear path whatsoever. Even food grown in Oregon here, if you buy it at Safeway or Albertsons, you know, may have gone to a warehouse in Provo, Utah, before it came here. So even even as an idea of you know thinking that there's a direct path from where something is grown to where you live. Um, if you really want to know food miles, you have to think about the whole distribution uh, system, the hub and spoke system. And like I said, the, the actual miles uh, tells us only a very small piece of the story. Um, it depends on how they were shipped, uh, were the products refrigerated, were they prepackaged and didn't need refrigeration, were they trucked, were they sent by train, were they on an ocean liner, freighter. All of those things make a huge difference in the carbon footprint of the transportation, but the carbon footprint of the transportation of food is only, like I said, one small part of it. The way food is grown is, is a much bigger footprint than the way it's shipped to you. If eating only local food isn't just the answer, and neither is completely abandoning the global food system, I had to ask Dr. Martin, what is something that every person listening to this podcast could realistically do that would reduce the environmental impact of their food choices? Here's what he had to say. So one sort of simple answer is we, sh we could eat less meat. And I say that as someone who raises meat. <laughs> right? But um, 
we don't need nearly as much uh, as we as we do. So I'm, and again, this is this is part of my. I'm not an absolutist on many things. I think it kind of zaps the joy out of out of life. So if you do, so I'm not saying everybody who eats meat should stop eating meat, but I'd like to phrase it more as that's one way, particularly particularly industrial confined feed operation, CAFO meat. That to me, that's the, the first step would be to find alternatives to that. Here's a little explanation of CAFO meat. CAFO stands for Confined Animal Feeding Operation. These farms are usually run by large agricultural companies and supply 98% of the United States meat. A CAFO can house anywhere from hundreds to millions of animals at a time, and these animals are typically fed corn, soy, and antibiotics instead of grass. They usually are in these facilities that don't have windows and they aren't moved around much. According to the CDC, there is a strong evidence that the use of antibiotics on these farms is contributing to an increase in antibiotic-resistant microbes, basically these tiny little things found all around us and in our human bodies. We have millions of them inside us. This is causing antibiotics to become less effective for humans. The CDC classifies this as a serious threat to human health because fewer options exist for people to overcome disease when they are infected with these antibiotic-resistant microbes, which is insane. So next time you're shopping for meat, maybe try to look for labels that say 100% USDA organic or grass-fed. And don't fall for anything labeled as natural or antibiotic-free. Usually these have no legal standards, like we were talking about earlier with the term green. Okay, mini rant over. Back to Dr. Martin. But where I'm really going with this is... um, the best thing you can do to for the environment is to stop wasting so much food. We've it's it would be the easiest thing that we could all be involved in. It has the greatest environmental impact. We don't think of it. We think of the environmental impact just of what happens if we throw food away, does it produce methane or are we composting it? But you're wasting when you waste food, you waste all of the human effort the water, the nutrients, the energy, everything that is represented in that food, everything that it took to get that food to your table or to your refrigerator or to your restaurant. And when you waste that, you may have just as well have gone out and picked up some topsoil and thrown it away and uh, washed it down the river or uh, taken uh, a gallon of gasoline or whatever is involved in the the energy, and you know, dump that without using it. So you're wasting all of the effort. So eat less meat, and just we have to stop wasting food. And, and that's something that is within the grasp of everyone. There's almost nothing beneficial about climate change and global warming when it comes to food production. Agriculture loves stability, and climate change is is not contributing to stability. It's greater instability, more flooding, more drought. Um, everything we experience now probably at, at a more extreme level. 
that's none of that is good for for growing food. There there might be a few benefits, you know, to some extent. Uh, so there've been some studies that have looked at increased carbon levels in the atmosphere and plants, of course, through photosynthesis, like to photosynthesis the incorporation of carbon. So in controlled experiments, um, all things being equal, more carbon uh, does produce more. Uh, look, the people who grow marijuana around here know that, right? They pump extra carbon into the enclosed plants so they'll grow better. But in the real world, I mean, in an uncontrolled experiment, you're, you have to also combine that with greater temperature uh, rises. And it turns out that quickly the benefits of the increased CO2 in the atmosphere are offset by the extreme weather and the temperature rise, which makes it more stresses the plants to a point where they become less productive. So, yeah, there are a few people who like to point out that there are there might be a few benefits, but it's far far outweighed by by the negative aspect. It's just going to make it more more and more difficult uh, to grow food. Lewis Mumford said, "You know, trend is not destiny," and so we need to understand that we can change the the trends, and they don't have we don't have to project everything that's happening indefinitely into the future. I, I'm not saying what we're doing now is sustainable. But I do want to remind people that a lot of the dire predictions from the past haven't come true. Two things, we're creative as humans, we, and we are resilient. I, I mean, I'd rather stress that we could try to prevent problems in the first place rather than how good we are at <laughs> reacting and surviving through stress. Um, so resiliency is a good term. Um, but I like to shed these notion, sort of absolute notions that either we're all doomed or or we're going to save the planet. I don't know what either one of those means. And so we have to think more about what are those ways, big and small, that we can move in a better direction than what we're doing now. I hope that uh, that inspires and, and makes people feel uh, the ability to mobilize for doing better things. I've taken some of the pressure off myself over the years as an environmental studies teacher uh, that I'm that I'm responsible for whether students come out of my class more or less pessimistic or optimistic. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that's deeply ingrained in our own psyche and our personality and our experiences. And so all I can do is put out the information that I know and recognize that everyone's going their take on that particularly the, the affect of that information is going to be different for everyone. And, and then the other thing it reminds me is like, I, I know most of what you know, and I've been watching this for a longer period of time, and I haven't given up hope yet, so maybe I can be a bit of a role model in that regard. My friends and I often talk about what to do with all the information we're learning that can often seem super depressing, you mm -hmm. know, but it is about how you look at it. Like you're saying, are you going to be optimistic? Are you going to see it as a catalyst for change? Or are you going to take it and just feel super sad? Which sometimes you can, yeah. both can happen. The other, the other step I take is to remind students that these problems didn't start the day you learned about the problem, 
we've known about many of these things. And there are many great people out there and organizations that are working already. So you have allies. So we started with the story of going to buy avocados in winter in Oregon at a supermarket. And we're ending with possibly even more to think about now than where we started. But that's the beauty of a good conversation. I think when I boil it down, it becomes clear to me that there is no perfect way to eat. There are no perfect foods. But that doesn't mean there aren't ways that we can improve what we're currently doing. And I think that's the point. I really want to thank Dr. Martin for joining me on the podcast on the first episode of Just Food and diving into these important, awesome, and interesting subjects. At least I think they're interesting. If you liked this episode, of course, share it with your friends and family. And also, I will be releasing another episode soon that deals with similar topics of sustainability, food, all the good things. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. It means the world to me. I hope you are able to come away with the small challenge of maybe eating less meat or maybe definitely wasting less food. I'm Victoria Ginsburg, and you are listening to Just Food. <laughs>